Part 2 of Chapter 6 of Uncle Joe's Stories. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Allison Hester. Part 2 of Chapter 6 The Crones of Mersham. Now, I verily believe that the doings of that kitten at Farmer Long's farm were of such a wonderful and unheard of character that a whole book, and a very amusing book, too, might be written about them. But people did not write many books in those days, and Farmer Barrett could not recollect many particulars about this part of the story. At all events, there can be no doubt, to use his own expression, that the animal's tantrums were extraordinary. The cream was constantly devoured, and the best cream jug broken on one occasion in order to get at it. The milk was forever being upset. The marks of dirty paws were daily to be seen on clean tablecloths, or on the counterpanes of beds just made, and in short, just wherever they ought not to be. Mrs. Long's best cap, having mysteriously disappeared one afternoon, was seen in the kitten's clutches upon the hearth rug, a perfect wreck of a cap, and useless forever afterwards. Then the perverse little animal appeared to entertain a strong and marked partiality for young ducks and chickens, which she ruthlessly murdered whenever she could lay her paws upon them, neglecting to touch any of the rats, upon which her energies might have been much more beneficially employed. Day by day depredations were committed, all of which were attributed to the kitten, and most of which were probably perpetuated by her. From the moment of her arrival at the farm, nothing seemed to prosper with the Longs. Everything turned out just the reverse way to that which they had hoped, and it really seemed as if some evil spell had been cast upon them. Looking calmly back upon the whole history, I have no doubt at all but that the crones had bewitched the kitten when they met the children on that memorable afternoon, and that to this must be attributed all that afterwards occurred. However this may be, it was certainly an unlucky day for the Longs when that kitten came upon their premises, and that they very soon found out. Still, people do not always put the saddle upon the right horse immediately, and they did not at first believe that the animal had anything to do with their ill luck. Mrs. Long, however, who had an eye to business, could not stand the constant inroad upon her ducks and chickens to say nothing of the cream jug, and the loss of her cap very nearly brought matters to a climax. She might, perhaps, however, have borne it a little longer, had not an event occurred which was really beyond anybody's bearing. One morning, when the worthy couple were at breakfast, the kitten calmly jumped onto the table, seized a piece of bacon which the farmer was about to place upon his own plate, and deliberately carried it off. After this, it was quite evident she must be got rid of. No man can stand being robbed of his breakfast in such a barefaced manner, and the good farmer spoke up pretty strongly on the subject, as the breed was supposed to be a particularly good one. He did not order the animal to be killed, nor indeed would he have ventured to do so unless his wife had especially wished it, but he expressed himself in forcible terms as to the desirability of its quitting his premises with as little delay as possible. Mrs. Long had by this time become so entirely of the same opinion that she resolved to take immediate steps to carry out the joint views of her husband and herself. 
She accordingly directed that the cart should be got ready the same afternoon, and that Tom the bailiff should drive her down to Mersham, where she determined to restore the kitten to the Gowers with her own hands. Accordingly, at the appointed time the cart was brought round, old Dapple, the steady pony, was in it, and Tom prepared to drive. Mrs. Long got in, and the kitten, who had shown an unwanted and marvellous docility in submitting to be placed once more in a basket, was safely deposited in her lap. Off they went, out of the farmyard into the lane, and taking a turn which brought them near to Aldington Knoll, descended towards the woods through which runs the road from Mersham and Aldington to the canal, and so away across Romney Marsh to, to Dimchurch. You must understand that Tom and his mistress were heading away from the canal, only they had come into that road in order to reach the lower part of Mersham, in which was situate John Gower's cottage. So when they came past Aldington Knoll and descended the hill, the marsh road led back to the left, nearly parallel with that from which they came, whilst they pushed straight forward along the road through the woods. As soon as they got well into the wood, or rather into the road on each side of which the wood was wide and thick, old Dapple began to show visible signs of uneasiness. He swerved first on one side of the road, and then on the other, abandoning all the good quiet habits of a respectable middle-aged pony, and behaving much more like a giddy young colt who had never been broken to harness. Tom, the bailiff, who was a simple country lout, did not know what to make of it, and was both confused and frightened when his mistress began to tell him that it was only his bad driving. But this was evidently not the case. Dapple wanted very little driving at all, and the best whip in the world could not have kept him straight when he was in the mood which seemed now to have possessed him. Another cause also disquieted good Miss Long. The kitten began to fidget in her basket in a most unaccountable way, and to give vent to various discordant sounds, whilst the weight upon the good lady's knees, as the basket had been on Mary's arm, was really unpleasantly heavy. They managed to get through the woods somehow or other, until they were well out of the parish of Aldington, and had entered that of Mersham. Here all their troubles increased. The kitten's struggles were more violent than before, and Dapple became perfectly unmanageable, until all at once they perceived a large black cat upon one side of the road, which suddenly darted in front of the cart, and so startled the pony that he shied quite across the road, brought the wheel of the cart over the side of the ditch, and in another moment it was overset, and its occupants were tumbled into the brambles and bushes with which the ditch was choked. Had it been winter, or had there been much rain lately, poor Mrs. Long would probably have been drowned, or at best would only have escaped with a severe ducking. As it was, the principal risk of life or limb she ran was from the kicking of the pony, and as Dapple was too fat to indulge in any great manifestations of this kind, she was tolerably safe from personal injury. But a stout woman overturned in a ditch full of brambles is, after all, a pitiable object, and is not likely to be improved either in temper or in appearance by the event. So as soon as the good lady could scramble up to a sitting position, she began to abuse everybody and everything to the best of her ability, which was not inconsiderable when applied to such an attempt. 
She told Tom that he should certainly get the sack as soon as they got home. She declared Dapple was old and worn out, and only fit to draw the dung cart in the future, and she abused the kitten in no measured terms. But where was the kitten? In the tumble and scrimmage, the lid of the basket had come off, and the animal had disappeared. Disappeared, however, only for a moment, for Tom, the bailiff, suddenly exclaimed in a terrified voice, "'Looky, missus! Do looky now! There be our kitten, surely!' And casting up her eyes, Mrs. Long beheld, or at least so she always declared to her dying day, the kitten seated upon the back of the large black cat which had been the cause of their disaster, and which was now careening full tilt down the road with this rider upon it. The old lady, being brave as she was stout, which is saying a great deal, felt nothing but rage when she saw what had happened not only at the impudence of the cat, but because this occurrence threw a light upon the past and at once opened her eyes to the truth and disclosed the reason of the kitten's abominable behavior at the farm. After a moment's pause, she broke out in great wrath. It's them crones, she cried in loud and excited tones. It's them crones, or some like em. That kitten's been bewitched. That's what come to it, Tom. You may depend upon it drat them witches scarcely were the words out of her mouth when she shrieked loudly ah what's the matter missus said tom why replied she something scratched me and pointing to her arm the sleeve around which had been pushed up high in her struggles to sit upright there indeed was a long red scratch as if inflicted by the nail of a hand or the claw of an angry cat to be sure, a lady who is seated in the middle of a bed of brambles cannot be expected to escape unscratched, and no supernatural agency need be invoked in order to produce such a misfortune. Still, Mrs. Long always declared that this was no bramble scratch, and coming as it did at the very moment when she was speaking strongly against the witches, there could be very little doubt as to the source from which the injury really came. However, witches or no witches, it was impossible to sit all the live-long afternoon in a ditch full of brambles, so with much difficulty and many struggles, Mrs. Long contrived to get up, and Tom the bailiff, having looked to Dapple, found there was no very serious damage done either to him or to the cart, so they righted the ladder, and having got into it, proceeded on their journey. True it was, that there was now no kitten to take back to the Gowers, but the farmer's wife was determined to let them know the extraordinary manner in which the animal had conducted itself, and had a great dislike to turning back without reaching the place for which she had started. So she directed Tom to drive on along the crossroad, which leads from Aldington Woods to Bilsington, and comes out into the main road from Mersham to Romney Marsh. At that point, if you turn to the left, you can go to the marsh, or to Rucknage and Orlstone by a road which lies a little further south, and if you turn to the right, you pass through the end of the great range of woods which occupy so much of that district, and presently come from Billington and to Mersham. Of course, it was to the right that Mrs. Long turned, having made a kind of half-circle round Billington Priory, which was thus at her right hand all the time. 
It is necessary to be thus particular, in order that no innocent parish may be wrongfully suspected of having harboured the strange and wicked creatures whose power was almost entirely confined to parts of Mersham, Bilsington, and Aldington, and some parishes further west on the borders of the marsh. A good name is a great possession, and the adjacent parishes of Sevington, Hinkshill, Smith, and Selinge have always been so free from the worst class of witches that, in writing of this neighborhood, one wishes to be precise. After they had turned to the right, as I say, a short mile brought our travelers to John Gower's cottage, but before they reached it, they had to pass within a hundred yards or so of the abode of the crones, to which a very little frequented by-road led, branching off from the road on which they were driving. It showed courage in Mrs. Long to take this route, especially after what had happened, but she was naturally a bold woman, and perhaps she thought that the witches had probably done all that they cared to do in having overturned her cart once and stolen her kitten. Be this as it may, she reckoned without her host, for Dapple, who had been quiet enough since the accident, began to grow restive again as they neared the part of the road which I have mentioned, and when within fifty yards of it, suddenly stopped and refused to move an inch. Tom the bailiff laid the whip over the pony's back with a will, but the only effect was to make him rear and back, so that they were in imminent danger of a disaster similar to the first. Then, to make matters worse, there arose a cloud of fog before them, which was so thick they could see nothing, and had a disagreeable smell of smoke about it. Whence or wherefore it came, they could not tell, for the sun was still high in the heavens, and the sky above their heads clear and blue. It was evident that something evil was at hand and at work, and neither Mrs. Long nor her servant knew what to make of it. Presently the good lady called out angrily, "'How dare you pinch my arm, Tom!' and gave a short, sharp scream as she said so. "'Oh, don't! Please don't, Mrs.' cried the man at the same moment, as a hand hit him a cruel box on the ear. It need scarcely be said that neither of the occupants of the cart had touched the other, but the matter did not end there. Pinches, pushes, scratches, thumps, hair-pulling, and kicking began to a most extraordinary extent. No one could be seen, but invisible hands assailed both Mrs. Long and Tom so fiercely and so vigorously that they both shouted aloud with pain and terror, whilst, as if in answer to their cries, hoarse chuckles and deep bursts of laughter rang in their astonished ears, although no human being of any description was to be seen. Never was there a more unpleasant experience than that which the worthy pair underwent, and how it would have ended I really cannot say, but for an unlooked-for and fortunate event. All of a sudden, the pinching and beating ceased, the laughter came to an end, and the fog or cloud disappeared, as it had come, by magic, as a cheery voice shouted out close at hand, Hello! Who is this making such a noise in the road? My good people, it is too bad that you should let drink get the better of you in this way. Glancing indignantly round, they beheld no less a person than the worthy rector of Mersham himself, riding upon a stout grey cob, and evidently coming home from some expedition to the further extremity of his parish. 
Mrs. Long knew not what reply to make, but as soon as she recovered herself sufficiently, she answered the appeal. I am sure, sir, there is no call to say a word about drink, to which some folk lays everything that happens, be it what it will. But if you keep your parish clear of these here witches, you'd find things go a good deal better. The clergyman gravely shook his head. You must know, my good woman, he replied, that there are no such beings as witches, and you ought not to wrong elderly and respectable females by using such terms. There is nobody here, and nothing to hinder your journey. I am quite ashamed to see you stopping your cart in the middle of the road and quarrelling as has evidently been the case. Take my advice and get home as fast as you can. So saying, the good man passed the cart and began to trot gently on. Dapple, as if his difficulties were suddenly over and his objections to advance removed, immediately started after the rector's cob and thus they passed the dreaded by-road without further trouble. But, to her dying day, Mrs. Long always declared that she was sure they never would have got past if the rector hadn't come along just when he did. This shows the great and proper respect for the clergy which then existed, and is, moreover, a proof that Mrs. Long was a decent and respectable woman, whose word may be taken as establishing beyond doubt of the truth of the events which I have undertaken to relate. But it lay heavy on her soul for many a long day that the reverend man should have thought she had been drinking and made her more than ever angry with the crones whose wicked dealings had caused such an imputation to rest upon her. The rector had trotted briskly on and was before long out of sight, but the cart was soon close to John Gower's cottage, between which and the road was a bit of wasteland. It might be as much as two or three perches in size, for in those days every strip of land was not enclosed as it is nowadays, but there were plenty of green patches by the side of the roads, and in many places you could ride on grass for miles together. It is very different now, and although it may be said on one hand that we travel faster, witches are not heard of, and England is richer than in those days, Yet I often say to Jack Barrett that I think there were a good many pleasant things in the old times, especially in country life, which we do not get now, and for my part I should not mind having them back again, even with a few witches here and there with them, provided we could get rid of some of the strange newfangled ideas and curious goings-on which we have got instead, and which are much worse for all of us than a witch or two, or even a stray wizard. Well, Mrs. Long told Tom the bailiff to drive upon this bit of waste as near to the garden gate of John Gower's cottage as he could manage to get, and then down she scrambled and went into the house. John had not yet come home from his work, though he was expected every moment, but Mary received her guest with much civility, for she was a good-mannered girl and knew how to behave to her betters. So she did the honors of the house, whilst her sister and Billy sat still and listened. Mrs. Long was, as you may suppose, not exactly in the best of humours, nor was her dress in precisely that condition in which ladies like their dresses to be when they go out visiting. You cannot be overturned into a ditch, scratched, pinched, hustled, and pushed without some little disarrangement of your attire and Mrs. Long's dress consequently required a good deal of putting tidy 
in which Mary Gower assisted her to the best of her ability. Whilst doing so, she listened to the account of all that had occurred since the day upon which she and Billy had left the kitten at the farm, and upon being questioned by Mrs. Long as to the possible cause of its behavior, she told her of their having met the two crones as I have described. The farmer's wife then said that had she known the circumstance, she would have had nothing to do with the kitten, but that she did not blame Mary for not having told her, as of course she had not suspected there was anything wrong with the animal. As she spoke, in came John Gower from his work, and to him the whole story was soon told. John expressed his great regret at what had happened, and went so far as to offer the farmer's wife another kitten, but under the circumstances she deemed it better to decline the offer, and presently afterwards departed, taking good care to avoid the road by which she had come, and turning up instead by the road, at the corner of which the good intent public house now stands by which means she kept to the north of the big woods and got safely home. Her adventure, however, made no little talk in the neighborhood, and people shook their heads gravely and wisely whenever the matter was mentioned. Mrs. Long herself was so angry at the disrespectful manner in which she had been treated and the unjust suspicion that had been raised in the clergyman's breast that she could by no means be satisfied to rest quiet. Before taking any steps, however, to get matters set right, she determined to make an expedition to Brayburn, where lived a wise woman named Goody Flasket, for whom she obtained sundry charms against witchcraft, with which she decorated herself, in order that she might be able to speak and act against witches with impunity. Thus armed, she never lost an opportunity of doing both the one and the other, and I suppose the charms must have had a certain power, because Farmer Barrett declared that the good woman, when she had them on, never felt any of those strange scratches from invisible hands which she had experienced when speaking against witches on the occasion already mentioned. Still, say and do what she would, the power of the Mersham crones did not seem to be diminished. They seldom appeared all three together, but might be said generally to hunt in couples, although sometimes they were met singly, but hardly ever without a great black cat. The kitten was never again seen by its former owners, but in all probability had been taken by the crones to form one of the guardian cats by which they were thus attended. Petty thefts abounded in the neighborhood, and no one suffered from them more than Farmer Long, although his farm was at a considerable distance from the cottage of the crones. At last, things got so bad that the farmer really thought he could stand it no longer. So one day, after the disappearance of a fine lamb from one of his fields, when the crone, Humpy, had shortly before been seen in the immediate proximity of the flock, and one man went so far as to say he had seen her driving a lamb before her in the road, the farmer boldly applied to the nearest justice of the peace for a warrant to search the cottage. There was some little difficulty in the matter, owing to the circumstance that old Finn, the Mersham constable, positively declined for some time to go near the place. But, upon being encouraged by the parish constable of Smeath, bold Joe Worrell, who offered to go with him, they proceeded to perform their duty, accompanied by the farmer. Mrs. Long had gone to Dimchurch that day for a breath of sea air, so that he knew she would not be uneasy about him, and deemed it but right to back up the officers of justice, whom he met by appointment 
at the foot of Collier's Hill in Mersham, and they advanced together. But the road appeared to be endless, for although it could not be much more than two miles, if so much, to the cottage, it seemed as if they would never get there. Then, although the weather had been fine, there came on a hailstorm which nearly blinded them, and, notwithstanding that Finn had been born in the parish, and the others knew it well, they actually lost their way, and found themselves close to King's North Church, which everybody knows to be in quite an opposite direction. They hastily retraced their steps, but then it suddenly became dark. Finn and the farmer both had their hats plucked off their heads by invisible hands, and although Worrell was untouched, it being well known that no witch dare lay hands on a smith man, yet he felt far from comfortable. Determined, however, to do their duty, the men made another attempt, and going round towards Aldington, were about to try and approach that side, when all darkness having cleared away, they saw at a distance a light in the sky, which betokened a fire, and from the direction it appeared to be burning somewhere very near to Farmer Long's house. This put out of his head altogether the business upon which he was out, and he immediately retraced his steps as fast as possible, accompanied by the constables. When he got near home, the flames seemed to have died away, but a heavy smoke hung over the place, and as he approached still nearer, a sad sight indeed met his eyes. His stables were utterly burned to the ground, and three valuable horses destroyed, despite every effort to save them. Farmer Long rushed hastily to the spot, but all he found was his poor half-witted son sitting calmly on the grass, contemplating the smoldering embers with a vacant expression of countenance. "'What has happened, Stephen lad? Where's Tom? How did all this begin? Who has done it?' were the eager questions of the excited man, but to all of them the youth replied with the stolid indifference of idiocy, Steenie not know. Subsequent inquiries proved that two, as usual, of the crones had been seen in the vicinity of the farm that day. As a public road ran very near, this may perhaps be deemed by some to have been slight and inconclusive evidence of guilt but it was universally accepted at the time as beyond all doubt connecting them with the affair. Some few there were who insinuated that the idiot boy had set the stable on fire for amusement, unconscious of the mischief he was doing. But these, of course, were some of the foolish and obstinate people who always liked to differ from the rest of the world and put forward their own views against those of everybody else. Of course it was the Mersham clones who had done the thing, else why should it have occurred at the very time when Farmer Long was engaged on an expedition, the object of which was to search their cottage? At all events, so entirely convinced upon the subject was the whole neighborhood that it resolved the matter could not rest there, but must be taken up seriously. The question was, how to do it? Inquiry before the magistrates appeared useless, for if two constables, and one of them a smith man too, could not even approach the crone's dwelling, of what avail was it to invoke the authority of the law? The church might be tried, but the rector of Mersham was known to have steadily set his face against any belief in witches, and it was more than probable that no other clergyman would like to interfere in his parish without his knowledge and consent. Long consultations were held, and wise heads laid together about the business, 
and at last it was determined to rouse the honest people of the neighbourhood round, most of whom had suffered more or less from the pilfering habits of the crones, and, covered with as many charms and magic tokens as they could obtain from old Goody Flasket and one or two other wise women who lived near the place, to advance in great numbers against the enemy in order to try what ducking in a horse-pond would do for them. So, on one fine afternoon, a great concourse of people, meeting in several parties, bore down from different quarters upon the cottage of the crones. It was a mellow day in autumn, and hopping was just over at the time when this proceeding took place. John Gower had come home that day to dinner, and a memorable day it was in his family. Mary, Jane, and Billy were all at home, and they had just sat down to their homely meal when a low, hurried knocking was heard at the door. At this very moment, it so happened that the horseshoe, which was usually nailed over that door, had fallen down, owing to one of the nails which supported it having given way, and consequently it lay on the grass near the door, instead of hanging in its usual place. Farmer Barrett was always particular in mentioning the circumstance, Else, he said, people might think that a horseshoe is not a real protection against witches, whereas it is the best and surest safeguard, only it must be nailed up against a wall or over a door. John bade his son open the door, and as soon as he had done so, they perceived a good-looking young woman leading two others, apparently older than herself, but perfectly blind, whilst on her arm each carried a basket. They were quite strangers to John and his family, and appeared to have walked some way. "'Might we ask to rest a while in your cottage, good friend?' asked the young woman. "'I and my two blind sisters have walked all the way from Ashford today, and are bound to Romney.' "'Certainly, ma'am,' said John in reply. "'But surely this be a long walk for such as ye.' "'Ah,' replied the other, "'we should have thought so once.' but a cruel landlord has turned us out of our house, these poor afflicted creatures and me, and having relations at Romney, we are going there in the only way the poor can travel, on our feet, and we have nothing with us but our tame rabbits, poor creatures, which we always carry in our baskets. We should be very thankful if we might come in a couple of hours or so. By all means, said worthy John, whose simple heart was at once touched by this tale. Come in, come in by all means. And stepping forward, he helped one of the blind girls over the threshold, and they all entered the cottage. The moment they were inside, Mary's favorite cat, who had been seated by the fireside, intently watching the proceeding, jumped up and sprang through the open window without saying a word to anybody, which indeed, as a respectable but ordinary cat, she was not likely to have done under any circumstances. Mary observed this, and wondered at the animal being so shy of strangers. But nobody made any remark upon the incident, and seats being found for the newcomers, they not only sat down, but condescended to share the family dinner, and that with such appetites that the children of the house themselves came off but second best. John Gower asked several questions, which were satisfactorily answered, but he always said afterwards that he never felt quite at home with his visitors which he put down to their being better educated and of a position apparently somewhat above his own. As they sat and ate and talked, a distant shout was heard, and then another. "'Father, what's that?' asked Billy. "'Oh,' replied Gower, "'I expect it's the people out after the crones. 
I forgot all about it, not being a busy man in such matters, or I ought to help my neighbors, perhaps, for those old women are no better than they should be. Ah, oh, oh dear! And whilst the words were still in his mouth, John Gower jumped up and began to hop about the room upon one leg, having been suddenly seized, he said, with a violent fit of a cramp therein. "'What are they going to do with the crones, father?' asked Billy. "'Duck em, I expect, boy,' replied he, upon which the lad rejoined, "'Oh, what fun! How I should like to see it!' And almost immediately afterwards burst out crying, saying that he had such a bad pain come in his inside. Meanwhile, more shouting was heard, and not very far off, and presently the door was thrown open, and in came a neighbor, James Firminger by name, and a noted enemy to witches, besides being so worthy and well thought of a man that he had more than once been spoken of as fit to be parish churchwarden. "'Neighbor Gower!' he shouted as he came in. "'Why art not out with the rest of us after the crones?' "'Twill be a grand day for Mersham, if we get quit of them. "'But you've got company, I see. "'Bless us! What a smell of sulphur!' "'As he spoke, he turned his eyes on the young woman and her two blind companions, "'and started as he did so. "'Firminger never went without some potent witch-charm upon him, "'which at once protected him from the malice of such creatures, "'and enabled him to detect them when disguised and upon this occasion he had nothing less than a relic of the great Kentish saint, Thomas A. Becket, being a small piece of the hair shirt of that holy man, cut off shortly after his death by one of the monks of Canterbury, who happened to be a Firminger, and religiously preserved in the Firminger family ever afterwards. Naturally, as Farmer Barrett observed, no witch could stand against that, and Firminger was a lucky man to possess it. It was doubtless in consequence, and by the virtue of this relic, that as soon as the good man was well inside the cottage, he not only smelt the sulphur which had not been smelt by the family, but saw what was the real character of John Gower's visitors. He took no second look, but shouted aloud, The crones! The crones! And seizing the little case in which was his relic in his hands, displayed it openly before them. The effect was instantaneous. All beauty disappeared from the face of the young woman. Her form changed, her countenance shriveled, and she stood confessed before the party as Humpy, the youngest of the three crones of Mersham. No less sudden and complete was the alteration in her two companions, who recovered their sight at once, but together therewith resumed the unpleasant forms and features of Skinny and Bony, the two other sisters of this disreputable family. There was a visible agitation at the same moment in the baskets which the sisters had carried upon their arms, and which they had deposited on the floor upon taking their seats. The lids shook, the baskets quivered, and in another instant overturned, when out sprang three enormous black cats upon the floor of the room. With a yell, which seemed to burst simultaneously from the throats of all the crones and all the cats, they rushed out the door, flying from the charm which James Firminger kept earnestly shaking before their eyes, out of the door, over the green space in front of the cottage, into the road, and as far and fast as they could to get away from the object of their terror. John Gower and his children sat stupefied with mingled surprise and awe for some seconds, and then, jumping from their seats, they all rushed through the door after Firminger, who, 
having done so, stood still outside, eagerly gazing after the retreating crones. He knew well enough that, if naught had prevented them, the honest people who were out after the witches would by this time have attacked and harried their home. Whither, then, would they fly? If they had quitted their cottage, ignorant of the coming of their enemies, and only bent on paying John Gower a visit, doubtless intending to do him some mischief or other, it might be that they would hurry home and encounter the angry mob of people, in which case there would be wild work one way or the other. If, however, as was more probable, and as was generally believed to be the case when the matter was considered afterwards, the three crones had been well aware of the projected attack upon them, and had purposely left home, hoping that they might lie safely hid in the abode of so honest and quiet a man as Gower until the danger was over. Then it became a serious question as to what other refuge they would seek. Now that they had been so manfully driven from their intended place of safety, the doubts of the lookers-on, however, were soon solved. A strange thing happened, which would never have been believed in those days, but that Firminger and Gower both solemnly declared it, and which perhaps actually will not be believed in these days of doubt and want of faith, but which I must nevertheless relate as Farmer Barrett told it to me. As soon as they were well on the other side of the road, each crone jumped upon her cat, and the animals, lightly springing over the hedge into the next field, set off full gallop in easterly direction, or in other words, heading as straight as a line to Aldington Knoll, well known in those good old days as the great fortress of witches. That was their point, no doubt, and it looked very much as if they were going to give up Mersham as a bad job and betake themselves to other and safer quarters. As soon as Firminger saw the line which the crones took, he turned to Gower and said in a hasty tone, Come on, mate, this must be seen to at once. Let us join the chaps who are gone to the old cottage as fast as we can, and tell them what we have seen, and all that has happened. John Gower was too wise a man to hesitate. Had he done so, he knew well enough that he would be suspected of having knowingly harbored the crones, and of being in league with them, a suspicion which would have ruined him forever in his native parish, and probably driven him from the county. So he bade Mary mind the horse, and keep Jane and Billy at home, and then he set off at best pace with Firminger down the road in the direction of the cottage of the crones. They very soon reached it, and found it surrounded by a number of people who were engaged in demolishing the premise altogether. They had not found much, probably because there was not much to find, and the owners of the place, as we know, had taken themselves off before the arrival of their unwelcome visitors. But they broke everything they could find, tore down the thatched roof to search for magic charms, none of which they found, but only a number of mice and a great deal of dust. They pulled to pieces the wooden part of the cottage, and knocked down a great part of the stone corner, counting everything as fair game, as witch's property, and striving their utmost to destroy as much as they possibly could. There were more than a couple hundred people, all told, Farmer Barrett believed, and he gave me a great many names, but I forget most of them. There was Bully Robus of the Farrier's Arms, I know, and Little Dick Broadfoot, the tailor of Mersham Street, and Bill Parsons all the way from Wearhorn Green. There were the Gowers, the Ferences, the Sillyborns, the Swafflers, Swinnards, and Finns. In short, not a family in that or any of the other parishes which was not represented, 
and they all seemed to vie with each other, which should do the most mischief, and be foremost in pulling down and destroying the evil place. It was several minutes before James Firminger and John Gower could command the attention of people so eagerly occupied about their business as these witch-seekers, and it would have been still longer, but for the position and character of Firminger, and his known hatred of all that pertained to witchcraft, he presently succeeded in making them listen to the wonders he had to relate, and when they knew for certain what had happened and the direction which the crones had taken, the whole current of their thoughts was turned into one eager desire to follow, and, if possible, to make an end of the inmates of that awful cottage as well as of the abode itself. They lost no time, therefore, in finishing the work on which they were then engaged, and immediately afterwards, the whole party swarmed up the road in the direction of Aldington Knoll, keeping up each other's courage by many brave words, and shouting uncomplimentary epithets with regard to the three crones. So they pushed on until they came to the spot where four roads met, one, that which our party had traversed in walking from the cottage, another bearing back to Bilsington and Ruckenage, a third to Newchurch and the Marsh, and the fourth to Aldington Knoll. Down this last road the people turned, and then, immediately before them, they had the mass of wood upon the side of the hill, which then, as now, encompassed the knoll itself upon the north, west, and south, the ground to the east being somewhat less woody. The knoll, apparently a grass hill, only that the grass being a good deal worn away, showed the bare rock at several places, peered over the woods, and the road to it lay right through the ladder for some distance, until by turning into the gate upon your right hand you entered the field out of which the knoll rose, and from the higher points of which were magnificent views over the marsh, and all the country east, west, and south, the hills behind shutting out the view to the north. The people were now some three-quarters of a mile from this gate, and if truth be known, I have no doubt whatever that some of them would very gladly have been a great deal further off. The power of the crones themselves was so well known, and their reputation of Aldington Knoll was so bad, that no one felt sure that some terrible misfortune might not result from braving this one and attacking the other. They had all heard strange tales of people bewitched, changed into animals, losing their senses, and all kinds of other disagreeable things, and of course, such tales would recur to them at such a moment. But there were brave hearts, then as now, among the men of Kent, and although fears and doubts may have been there, they did not operate so as to turn any man back from the work he had undertaken. The people moved down the road towards Aldington, and reached the point at which the woods began. At that moment, a loud clap of thunder pealed through the air, and vivid lightning flashed across the sky. A shudder passed through many a stout frame, but the men pushed boldly on. Then came a severe hailstorm, so severe that people took shelter beneath the trees, and waited until its violence seemed to be past, but none turned back. Then came a bitter, chilling wind, though it had been a lovely, soft, mellow day. The wind cut through the trees with a moaning sound, and pierced the people like a midwinter blast. Still, they pressed on, knowing that witchcraft was at work and that retreat would be ruined. They were halfway between the point at which the road entered the woods and the gate before mentioned, when a loud, terrible roaring was heard upon the right from the woods, which stretched up close to the knoll itself. 
So strange and so dreadful was the sound, that it made the blood of those who heard it run cold, and for a moment the foremost men of the throng paused. But three men there were in that crowd who neither quailed nor paused for a moment, so resolutely determined were they to carry out the work they had commenced that day. These men were James Firminger, Farmer Long, and old David Finn, the parish clerk of Mersham. The last named knew but little of the crones or witches, but tradition said that there always must be a Finn for parish clerk, and that Mersham would not be Mersham without one. This being the case, the old man felt it to be his duty to take such prominent part in an affair like the present as became one of an ancient family, filling a hereditary office. Therefore, although he knew that the rector would most likely have disapproved of the step he was taking, he had started early that day, and in company with Bully Robus and sundry other notables of the parish, had taken an active part in the proceedings from the beginning. These three men, then, were not deterred by the roaring, though it much resembled that of wild and savage beasts desiring their prey, and seeing it before their eyes. And when no beasts appeared, and it seemed to be nothing but sound, the rest of the people regained their courage, and all continued to push on towards the gate into the knoll field. About a hundred yards before they reached it, however, they found that they had to encounter an unexpected obstacle in the shape of several enormous elms which lay stretched across the road in such a manner as to most effectually bar any further progress. But, to the astonishment of all, no sooner had Firminger, Long, and Finn, who were now recognized as the leaders of the expedition, approached close to the barrier, than it vanished as suddenly as it had appeared, and left the roadway free. Encouraged by this result, as unexpected as it was satisfactory, the party advanced a few yards farther to find a great ditch yawning in front of them, and evidently intended to stop their further advance. On seeing this, Finn rushed to the front, and standing close to the edge of the abyss, pronounced in a loud voice the word Amen, which he had long held to be the most sacred and powerful form of invocation known to the world, and one which never failed to repel any evil creature to whom it was addressed. Whether from the effects of his utterance, or from any other reason, I cannot say, but certain it is that as the worthy clerk put one leg forward as if to step into the ditch, it closed up as if it had never been dug, which perhaps was the case. At all events, whether it was a real ditch or only a delusion of the eye, the chasm disappeared altogether, and once more the party proceeded until they reached the gate of the field and faced it, about to enter and approach the knoll, which now lay upon their right the field in which it was situated stretching back into the woods. On entering the gate, they were at once struck by the novel and curious appearance of the knoll. Smoke appeared to envelop it on all sides, and a deep rumbling proceeded from within it, as if a volcano were at work, and a volcano that meant mischief too. The party paused for a moment, looked at each other, and then, at the knoll, began to wonder what they had better do next. Everybody thought that everybody else was stopping quite unnecessarily, but nobody seemed inclined to move on first. 
even the three bold men firminger long and finn seemed less eager than hitherto and whispered to each other in low mysterious tones that they fancied they saw dark and fearful figures moving about among the smoke in which the knoll was enveloped it was well known to these men and indeed to most or all of their companions that Aldington Knoll was reputed to be the abode and principal gathering place of all the evil creatures in that part of the country. By common consent, men had for a long time past shunned it as a haunted and wicked spot, and it was no common evidence of courage that so many men had been found to approach it upon this occasion. After a few moments, the three men recollected the responsibility of their position, and the absolute certainty that if their party returned home defeated, the neighborhood would thenceforward be worse off than ever. The crones would never forget the plunder and destruction of their cottage, and would doubtless exact a severe compensation from the perpetrators of that ruthless deed. Moreover, for a couple of hundred people to have it said that they had been circumvented and beaten by three old women was not a thing to be thought of. So, shame overcoming their reluctance, they boldly marched forward again and encouraged their followers to charge up to the very foot of the knoll. They had got quite close to it when, either by accident or because he pulled it too hard in his nervous fidgeting with it, the string by which James Firminger's relic was tied around his neck suddenly broke and the charm itself fell to the ground. Hardly had this occurred when a yell most discordant in its tone, but appearing to express a mingled feeling of joy, triumph, fury, and revengeful longing all in one, broke from the interior of the mount. The next instant, the knoll itself opened wide, just like the mouth of a man preparing for a tremendous yawn, and a whole volley of cinders and ashes came bursting over the approaching party in a most disconcerting and unpleasant manner. At the same time, strange and uncouth figures suddenly appeared issuing from the knoll, some with goat's heads and horns, others with the bodies of men but a pig's head, snout, and bristles, others like monkeys, but oh, such frightful monkeys as never were seen, and all with eyes that rolled fearfully in their heads and glittered like fire. Conspicuous among this awful band appeared the figures of the three crones, bony, skinny, and humpy, each carrying a broomstick in her hand, and followed by her cat, which bounded forward as if to attack the invaders of the haunted hill. This was more than the latter could stand. They wavered, looked around, tottered a step or two backward, and then, as the cinders, hot cinders too, came upon them, and the evil creatures almost touched them, they turned round with one accord and fled down from the knoll as fast as their legs would carry them. Farmer Long was the first of the three leaders who gave way, for he afterwards declared that he recognized the lost kitten in a cat which seemed to select him as her particular object of attack, and as he ran, he vowed that he felt a scratch which penetrated, sharp and deep, in such a manner that he could not sit down comfortably for a fortnight and felt perfectly sure that only the claws of that kitten could or would have dealt him such a wound. As for Finn, he so lost his head that he ran off, bawling out Amen continuously at the top of his voice, but in a tone which conveyed so little of the real importance and dignity attaching to the word that it is little wonder that it had no effect. 
James Firminger, as became a man of his character and position, stood his ground longest, but his charm being gone, he felt less confidence, and when he, too, turned and ran, he felt belabored by an invisible stick all the way down to the gate of the field. Shouts, shrieks, and yells of laughter followed the retreating party, and there was scarcely a man in whose breast, amid all his fears, the thought did not arise that the result of this day's work had turned out to be one so utterly unfortunate for the people, and so triumphant for the crones, that the neighborhood would have to submit to the witch-ridden forever after. But sometimes, in human affairs, whether those of an individual or a community, at the very moment when things seem to be at their worst, they begin to mend, and that amendment is not unfrequently brought about by some agent which, to the wise and knowing of mankind, would have appeared the most insignificant and the most unlikely to have effected the change. So it was in the present instance. The affrighted people came rushing through the gate, and avoiding the road through the wood, which was their natural way home, turned in an easterly direction and ran up the road leading away from the wood, and into the main road leading from Aldington Corner to Hyde. They had run but a very short distance when they came upon the innocent, simple, steeny long, sitting on the bank of the road side, apparently looking for flowers. He looked up with a vacant expression upon his face which, I am told, was not unusual with idiots in those days, and seemed astonished to see so many people all running in such a hurry. Several of the party hurried past the boy, too much occupied about providing for their own safety to think of either him or of anybody else. Presently, however, Farmer Long came running by, already somewhat out of breath, and burning with rage and shame at having been unable to resist the impulse which had made him fly before the power of the evil creatures of the knoll. When he came to the place where his son was sitting, he stopped short in his flight, and seizing the boy by the arm, hastily exclaimed, Come along, lad, come along. This is no place for the likes of you, endeavoring at the same time to hurry the youth away with him. But simple Steenie was by no means of the same opinion. He drew himself away from his father's hold, opened his large blue eyes to their fullest extent, and observed in a calm but very decided tone, Steeny not. Not what, boy? said the farmer eagerly. You'd better not stop here. Anyhow, leastways if you do, the witches will have you. But the boy, who had by this time risen to his feet, only smiled pleasantly upon his father, with the simple smile of the weak of intellect, and answered in a gentle tone, Steeny not frayed, people run, Steeny not run. At this moment, up came James Firminger, already bitterly repenting the flight which seemed certain to lead to such disastrous consequences. Overhearing the words of the boy, the thought instantly struck him that they might be turned to good account. Well did stout Firminger know that whatever be the power of witches and warlocks, it has no effect upon those whom heaven has deprived of their full share of reason and intellect, and it occurred to him, and perhaps it was true, that this unexpected meeting with simple Steeny was not accidental, but that it was possibly so ordered that the victory of the evil ones might be prevented. He stopped instantly, and shouted aloud to the rest of the party, Mate, he cried, are we not shamed by the words of this innocent? He will not run. He! Why then should we do so? The power which protects him can protect us. 
Let us turn once more and never give way like this to the evil ones. The words of Firminger produced a great effect upon those who heard him. Some, indeed, there were who had already made their way so far that they neither saw nor heard anything that followed, but fully two-thirds of the party checked their flight and waited to see what would follow. They were much reassured by that which immediately occurred. James Firminger went up to the boy and spoke to him kindly to the following effect. Steeny boy, that's right. You aren't afraid of no witches nor crones neither, be you. Thus addressed, Steeny drew himself up to his full height, smiled upon his questioner as he had upon his father, and said very gravely, No, Steeny not afraid. Good people help Steeny. As this was immediately interpreted by all who heard him to mean that the half-witted lad was assured of supernatural assistance in any encounter which might ensue, it had a wonderfully comforting effect upon the whole party. The courage which, in the case of most of them, had been oozing out at their fingers' ends, suddenly and miraculously returned to its natural home in their hearts, and they began to encourage each other by speech and gesture, and to ask what there was to be afraid of. Seeing his opportunity, Firminger used all his arts of persuasion, and the result was that those of the party who had not got beyond hearing when the above-mentioned incident took place, wheeled boldly and bodily round, and retraced their steps towards the knoll field, Firminger and Long leading the way, preceded by simple Steenie, who declined to walk with any of them, but trotted on ahead. As for Finn, he had disappeared, and was no more seen that day, having been so completely overcome by the total failure of the great invocation to which he had pinned his faith, that he was incapable of further action for the time, and was indeed never quite the same man afterwards. When the party got near the gate, there was no sign of anything unusual, but as soon as they set foot within the field, the same roaring arose which they had heard before, and the same smoke began to puff out from the knoll and to enwrap it once more in dark wreaths. At this moment, Firminger, Long, and their followers suddenly started with surprise. Simple Steenie was indeed walking before them, having left the trotting pace at which he had started, but he was no longer alone. A short, thick-set man, clad entirely in grey from head to foot, was leading the boy by the hand as they advanced together. In his hand he held a long staff, but otherwise appeared to be entirely unarmed. Whence he had sprung from, no one could tell. They had not seen any of their own party rush forward, and certainly no one had descended from the knoll. However, there was the gray man, sure enough, and on he marched by simple Steenie's side, as if they were the best friends in the world, and had long ago arranged the enterprise on which they were jointly bound. The others followed at a respectful distance, more and more astonished as matters went on. The roaring continued, and presently the same process was repeated as that which the people had previously witnessed and undergone. Figures moved rapidly amid the thick smoke, and ever and anon a lurid flame flashed from one side of the knoll to the other, affording a momentary glimpse of awful forms with threatening gestures directed towards those who appeared desirous to invade their territory. Still, Simple Steenie and his companion walked calmly on until they were within a very short distance of the knoll, when, as before, it opened and a volume of cinders and ashes was again poured forth. 
but at the same instant the grey man raised his staff high above his head and shook it in the air. Suddenly, without a cloud in the sky or any appearance whatever of rain, a perfect torrent of water descended from the heavens upon the knoll, the effect of which was to produce just such a fizz as when you throw a tumbler of water upon the fire. Only this sound was as if several hundred thousand tumblers had been thrown upon the same number of fires all at once, producing the loudest and most wonderful fizz that you can imagine. At the same time, a prolonged and terrible howl arose from inside the hill, as if the effects of the water had caused great discomfort therein. Next happened a remarkable incident. The mouth of the knoll opened with the same kind of yawning action as has already been described, as if the same onslaught as before was about to be repeated. But instead of waiting for this, Steenie and the gray man both raised a loud shout. The latter brandished his staff once more over his head, and both of them rushed boldly forward into the mound, which immediately closed behind them. The bystanders were struck with horror and amazement. Was the gray man in league with the enemy, and had he thus lured poor Steenie to his destruction? If so, why and whence the torrent of water, which had evidently not been relished by the inhabitants of the knoll? What on earth did it all mean? For a few moments the whole party stood fearful and irresolute. Soon it became evident that warm work was going on inside the knoll. Shouts, yells, rumblings, howls, and the most discordant noises were heard from within, whilst there were those among the people, and notably James Firminger and Bully Robus, who always declared that they heard, in and above the outcry, the word Dunstan, Dunstan, repeated ever and anon, and the same thought crossed the minds of both of them at the same time, namely, that the appearance of the grey man greatly resembled the description of the great St. Dunstan, so famous for the manner in which he tackled the arch-enemy upon one occasion with a pair of tongs, and whose name was said to be especially dreaded by all evil creatures. Be this as it may, the noise had not continued above a minute or two, before the spirit of James Firminger became too much excited to allow of his remaining quiet any longer. Calling to his companions to come on and help poor Steenie, he rushed boldly forward, and was followed by most of the others. But they were still several yards away from the scene of action, when they were stopped by an occurrence so extraordinary that no one who witnessed it ran the smallest chance of ever forgetting it. The knoll burst open in at least twenty different places, and from it there issued the same sort of creatures as those who had previously attacked and routed the Mercian forces. But their aspect was now as completely changed as their behavior cowering, shrieking, huddling together, as if to escape some terrible pursuer. They rushed frantically away on all sides, with heart-rending cries of despair and anguish. Then, in the middle of the knoll, rushing after the retreating foe, appeared no less a personage than the gray man, flourishing his staff and closely followed by simple Steenie, whose features were glowing with excitement and whom they distinctly saw in the act of administering a violent kick to a repulsive-looking creature with a serpent's head and a man's body, who was beyond all question an evil one of the worst description, but whose departure was much quickened by the action of the innocent. 
as everybody among the lookers-on was greatly confused and alarmed at the extraordinary spectacle suddenly presented to their view one hardly knows how far it would be safe to rely upon the many different accounts which were afterwards given of the details of the transaction of which i am writing and good farmer barrett always used to warn me against believing as gospel every particular of this part of the story however there were many worthy people out upon this day who declared solemnly that among the strange and horrible creatures who were turned out of aldington knoll that day they recognized the faces and features of several of their neighbors dead and gone who had been reputed witches in their lifetime and little dick broadfoot the tailor of mersham street an acute man as well as an honest one and one that would not willingly lie or exaggerate always took his bible oath that he saw as plainly as he ever saw anything in his life three awful creatures with cats heads and bodies but with horns and wings and with claws longer than any possessed by a mortal cat fly out of the mount and down the woods each having fast hold of and carrying with it a form which writhed and struggled as if in fearful agony but writhed and struggled in vain and furthermore dick avowed that he saw though how he had had time to see it i don't know he saw i say and knew it for a certain fact that these three unhappy wretches were the three crones of mersham doubtless being carried off to their own place by the three evil ones who had hitherto served them under the form of cats whether to believe the little tailor or not i hardly know but bully robus backed him up in the story and as the three crones never again appeared in that part of the world it may have been quite true certain it is that all those creatures who issued from the knoll in the way i have described were evidently driven out against their will utterly defeated and brought to tribulation by a superior power in a very short time they had utterly disappeared and a strong smell of sulphur being the only remaining token that they had ever been there whilst upon the knoll which was closed up behind them simple steenie and his companion remained standing alone in triumph the people saw the gray man lay his hand upon the lad's head for an instant as if calling down a blessing upon him then there came a mist or cloud over the knoll and when they looked again steenie was standing alone they hurried towards him instinctively knowing that there was no more danger to be apprehended from the place and he turned smilingly to meet them with an air of triumph steenie not fraid he said naughty people run way all gone but to all their questions about his late companion he would only answer by a vacant smile and incoherent words which left them just as ignorant as before they had however the great consolation of knowing that whether it had come about by the aid of simple steenie's innocent efforts or whether the gray man had of his own accord planned the whole affair and arranged for the discomfiture of the wicked ones that discomfiture was certain and complete from that day forth aldington knoll has been a peaceful quiet spot from whence the views to which i have already alluded may be contemplated without any fear of interference by any unpleasant inmates of the mound for there are none worse than rabbits now more might be told about some of the characters of our story but short and casual allusions are not desirable and to do more would be to lengthen the story too much so i will leave my readers to fancy for themselves 
all that happened afterwards to John Gower and his family, as well as to Farmer Long, Simple Steenie, and all the rest of them. It is a good many years ago now since these things occurred, and the actors in the stirring scenes which I have related have long since passed away. If I had not chronicled them now, from my recollection of good old Farmer Barrett's gossips, I dare say Jack Barrett, who is a careless fellow at best, and not equal to his father, young men seldom are in these days, according to my opinion, would have told the story differently, and only in fragments, to his children, and they would have varied it again in telling it to their children, so that in a couple of generations it would have been quite uncertain, and the real truth never would have been known. This is why I have thought it right to tell it. I drove down in my pony carriage the other day with a young lady by my side, to see the very spot where the crone's cottage used to stand, and to go through all the places where these scenes occurred. I could make them all out pretty clearly, though there is no vestige of the cottage left. We drove on to Billington and back towards Aldington by the same road that Mrs. Long and Tom the bailiff drove when they were taking the kitten back to the Gowers. We did not see any witches for certain, and perhaps there are none left, though, as it is a good way from the railroad, I am not very sure on this point. In a secluded spot by one of the woods, there was the figure of a man seated by the side of the road breaking stones, and I thought there was something in his look more than common. It was on a hill up which I was walking, and if I had been alone, I might have stopped and tried to find out more. But as I did not want to run the least chance of the young lady with me being frightened, I only took care to walk on the side of the road between the pony carriage and the figure and as we passed it, I laid my right hand on my heart and pronounced that famous mystic word of power. Oh, I forgot. I must not write it, because that is forbidden. But if any little girl wants to know, boys are never curious, of course, so they won't mind not being told, she must just write me a pretty little letter and ask, and as I am very easily coaxed, I shall very likely either come and tell her, or make some arrangement by which she shall be able to find out for herself. It answered very well that day, as indeed it always does, and we got home quite safe. Home is the best place at which to leave one's friends, and therefore, having brought myself there in my writing, I think I will stop, and only hope that others beside myself will be interested in hearing the famous legend of the Crone of Mersham. End of chapter 6 Recorded by Allison Hester End of Uncle Joe's Stories by Edward Natchbull Hugesson